We've been doing a series of lessons on the mission of God and looking at how the mission of God was presented in Israel's history through Jesus Christ. And for the last several weeks, we've been focusing on how the mission of God is, is presented in the gospel. And so I've been trying to go back and give a very clear definition of what the gospel is and how we respond to it and what the results of it are. Again, let me remind you of what the word gospel means. It simply means good news. That's all it means. It was a word in the first century that had to do with the fact that something has happened that's changed the world and people's lives in particular. And of course, Jesus Christ is the essence of the gospel. Now, I've been talking about that there are three aspects of the gospel. Oftentimes, when we think of the gospel, we think one-dimensionally. When we need to be thinking more tri-dimensionally, if that's a word, or three-dimensionally. The first aspect of the gospel is simply, what is the good news? And the good news is the fact that Jesus Christ has come into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. If you remember the last several weeks, I've used a bullseye. Right in the middle of the bullseye is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel in its purest sense. Who he is, God incarnate, and why he came. To do for me what I could not do for myself, and the same for you. You go out from the bullseye to the next level, and that is what Jesus did. The fact that Jesus came, suffered, died, was buried, was raised the third day, and ascended to heaven. All of that is what Jesus did for us. And in that cross, as we sang that song a while ago, when I survey, you know, that cross, in that cross was done amazing things for you and for me. And we need to understand that. And then the third level of, of that bull's eye is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus ascended, sat down at the right hand of God, launched the kingdom of God, which you and I are part of right now. You know, I prayed a few moments ago for our country. But we need to realize that we have a citizenship that is far greater than our citizenship in the United States of America. And that citizenship is in the kingdom of God. We have loyalty that's far greater than our loyalty to America. And that is loyalty to Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And you see, the United States will one day be swept away. Russia will be swept away. China will be swept away. But the kingdom of God, Daniel said, will last forever. And that's what we're a part of. Today, we move to the response. How do we respond to this good news? Because the response, all of us have to respond in some way. Now, our response may be, huh, and a lot of people is. I mean, when they hear about Jesus, huh, and they never go any further than that. Scripture, however, lays out what a proper response to the gospel. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the rest of this month. And then, beginning in July, we're going to look at the benefits of the gospel. What is it that we get out of, quote, unquote, obeying the gospel? as both Paul and Peter talked about it. Now, I want to begin our response by looking at a passage from Mark's Gospel. This is Mark chapter 1. This is from the God's Word translation. I really like the way it lays it out because it uses that word good news. But this is Jesus speaking. And notice Jesus' response. The time has come. 
God's kingdom is near. In other words, the time for the launching of God's kingdom is here. And then notice what he says. Change the way you think and act. We're going to be talking about that next week, okay? But then notice the fundamental aspects of hearing that gospel and believe the good news. Believe. There's a word in the Greek New Testament for belief, and it's the Greek word pistis. And, and I want to use a couple of words to help us understand what the original means. The word is pistis, and, and the best word I can get, the simplest word, is belief. It's when you have belief about or in something. We'll look at that more here in just a moment. The verb form of it is pistuo. And, and the best way to describe it is the verb, to believe. And so you have a belief that you believe in. And so you have both the noun and you have the verb. Notice the Greeks almost spell the same. The English is also almost spelled the same. But here's the thing we all need to realize. Our belief in the gospel, in the good news, is more is wider, is bigger than I think many of us really pause to think about. And that's why we use words like faith, faithfulness, trustworthy, loyalty. All of these are aspects of this Greek word pistis that God and Jesus are calling us to. Now this is the Amplified Bible. I really like the way the Amplified Bible does what it says. It amplifies certain words. Notice the words here. But to as many as did receive him. John had begun his gospel by saying he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The majority of them did not. But to as many as did receive him and welcome him, he gave the authority, he gave the power, he gave the privilege, he gave the right. All of that's contained in that Greek word there that's used to become children of God. But notice the means. That's what's important here. Notice what he goes on to say. That is to those who believe in. And I love the Amplified as it says, who adhere to, trust in, rely on his name, the name of Jesus. And so here's kind of this introduction to this concept of what belief is. You turn to the end of John's gospel. And by the way, John's gospel is the gospel of belief. That's what it is the gospel of faith. But you turn to the end of it, and John tells us why he wrote his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. You can go to Matthew, you can go to Mark, you can go to Luke, you can read of others. John picks seven of them, okay? He picks seven signs, and he says, I want to show you who Jesus is through these seven signs. One of them, for instance, Tom uh, came out of John chapter 6, where Jesus fed the 5,000. And then immediately said to the people, I'm the bread of life. And so he would perform a sign and then teach through that sign some lesson about who he was. But notice the purpose of it. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what is a person's first response to the good news? Very simply, it's belief or faith. Both of those mean the exact same thing. But you'll notice up there a question mark. And I put a question mark up there because sometimes we look at that word belief or that word faith 
And we don't realize how much it actually means when it's found in the New Testament. And that's what I want to explore over the next few minutes. Now, Paul is the one that tells us. He says, listen, faith, belief is the foundation. It is the most important response we will have. Because if you don't have this one, all the rest of them are mute. It is that simple. And so he says, for as by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. And so you have the word grace up there. For it is by grace. And what is grace? Grace is real simple, it's Jesus. Jesus is the demonstration of God's grace in the world. And so it's through Jesus that we're saved, but it's through our faith in Jesus. And so it's faith that basically takes advantage of this incredible grace that God offers to us. John 3, 16, the passage that John led us in reading a few moments ago. One of the most important, and I've added the words up here, and we all know this. A lot of us, I say we all, a lot of us know this. We learned it as children. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, and I've added to that, whoever trusts, whoever has faith, all of those words are contained in this Greek word, pistis. I love Romans and what Paul says in Romans. And, and I'm using the voice translation. Uh, you know me. I, I love to look at different translations. I do that constantly. And to me, the voice, which is a fairly recent translation, came out a few years ago, the voice at times really grabs it. I mean, they do a fantastic job. And I think they probably do as good a job on the translation of Romans chapter 3 as anybody. Notice how they translate it. This redeeming justice... That's Jesus. That's what he did at Calvary. This redeeming justice comes through the faithfulness of Jesus, the anointed one, the liberating king. Remember, the Greek word Christos, we translate it Christ, means the anointed one, but more than an anointed one, it means the king. That was how it was used in the first century. I mean, the king was the anointed one of God. And so I love the fact that they translate it our liberating king. But notice, who makes salvation a reality to all who believe without the slightest partiality. Now, I want you to notice the way they translate this phrase. This redeeming justice comes through the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, the NIV will translate this, faith in Jesus. But if you'll look in the footnote of the NIV, they'll say, or the faithfulness of Jesus. I think the faithfulness of Jesus is more accurate. Otherwise, you have a redundant statement by Paul. You know, we believe and then we believe a second time. No, our trust is in the faithfulness of Jesus. His faith. His coming, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what God's grace is. Is Jesus' faithfulness to the covenant of God and his willingness to go to the cross on our behalf. And that makes our salvation a reality if we'll put our trust in his redeeming work. Now, I want to spend our remaining time by asking a simple question. What makes up a saving faith? Because, again, this word faith can be used in so many ways in the English language. So walk with me as we look at the components 
of saving faith. First of all, a person has to believe in the facts about Jesus. It all begins with hearing the good news and then deciding, do you believe it? Now, a lot of us grew up not thinking about that process, but we've all done it or we wouldn't be here today. But notice what Paul said in Romans 10, 17 about faith. He says, consequently, faith comes from first hearing the message. That's why if you ever did the little five-finger exercise about our response, you know, how do we obey the gospel? Well, the first one is hear. Well, I've kind of put hear and faith together here, okay? But we hear the message, and of course the message is heard through the word about Christ. It is about who he was, what he did, and what he's doing now, okay? And so we hear that message, and we have to make a decision. Notice Jesus' own response in the first century. He says, listen guys, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. If you'd been a Jew, you'd heard all your life at synagogue, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming. He's on his way. He's going to set up the kingdom of God. He's going to drive out the Romans. He's going to restore Israel to her glory. I mean, you'd heard that message all of your life. Now Jesus was present, and he said, you've got to make a decision. Either you believe that I am the Messiah, or you'll end up dying in your sins. And there's the faith response. You can believe or not believe. I love C.S. Lewis and his presentation of what's called the trilemma. C.S. Lewis was a theologian of the 20th century. When he was 16 years old, he became an atheist. He was raised going to church, but at 16, he just decided, you know what, this Christianity doesn't make sense. And so he just abandoned it all, even to the point of saying, I don't even believe in God anymore. But over time, and through reading different writings, he began to think, wait a minute, maybe I've made a mistake. And C.S. Lewis came back to faith, came back to believing in God. And he became one of the most influential theologians over in England. And, and he basically says all of us, every person has to make a decision about who Jesus of Nazareth is. You've got to decide. And he says that ultimately you only have three, of, three choices to make. Choice number one, you can believe that Jesus is absolutely a lunatic. And let's be honest. If we were honest with ourselves, we would probably maybe think this one. I've I've got, June and I have two sons, Robert and Kyle. And, And if either of my boys at about age 13 or 14 had said to me, Dad, I need to let you know something, I'm God. Excuse me? I'm God. And, uh... I've got a different, different mission in my life than what you think I've got. Now, let me tell you something. I, I don't know what I would do if one of my boys told me that. I know what June would do. June would pick up the phone. She would call down to Centennial over to Parthenon Pavilion. She'd say, we've got a boy that we're bringing down there right now. Something is messed up with him. I mean, let's face it. Any of our kids were to tell us that they're God in the flesh. C.S. Lewis would use other illustrations that were more, you know, funny in nature. But he says, let's be honest. I mean, when you say that you are the Son of God, 
I mean, who's going to believe that? And in the first century, by the way, you go over to John's Gospel, and when Jesus actually said, I am, they said, we now know that you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. By the way, that was the worst name you could call somebody, by, according to the Jews. Demon-possessed Samaritan. That was absolutely the worst. And by the way, that simply means, in Greek, lunatic. That's, that's what it means. You, you've lost your mind. And so to have someone claim to be who he claimed to be, I mean, if it's not true and he believed it, he's a lunatic. C.S. Lewis says, no, but he may be a liar. He maybe just wanted the publicity. He just wanted to be popular and famous. And so he simply made all this stuff up. And so, you know, and, and of course, there's a lot of liberal scholars, especially a hundred years ago, that said Jesus didn't walk on water. Jesus didn't turn water to wine. Jesus didn't do all these miracles that you read about. This was just stories that were made up about him to, you know, make him look great. Well, if they're just stories made up, then either he or those who followed him are liars. Those guys who said he was raised on the third day and we're witnesses of it, if that didn't happen, they're liars. And we need to admit that. And then C.S. Lewis said, but the third option is, is that he's telling the truth. If he's telling the truth, he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Son of God, God in the flesh. Now, every one of us have to make one of three decisions. I suspect you've already made it like I have. I mean, I've never entertained the fact that Jesus was crazy or that Jesus was a liar. But we live in a world where we have people all around us who believe this, and they believe it with all their heart. And that's why we've got to go out and we've got to tell the true story in hopes that they'll come to believe that Jesus is Lord. But we need to pause for a moment and realize that just acknowledging that he is Lord, intellectual consent will not save you, though. I mean, there's a lot of people that if you ask them, do you believe there's a God, will tell you yes. I believe in the God. Now, do you in any way react as if you believe in God? Oh, no, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. Or do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Are you following? Oh, no, I don't follow him. And so you've got all kinds of people who will acknowledge it, but it never goes beyond that. James in James 2, talking about this very problem of intellectual consent, says, you believe that there is a God? says, wonderful, good, even the demons believe that. But the demons are not saved. Demons acknowledge there is a God who created the universe. And so you can believe in a fact without believing in the one to the fact who, who created the fact. Okay? Let, let me give you the best illustration. If I were to say to you, do you believe that Barack Obama was president of the United States? Now, unless you're a lunatic or a liar, you would say, of course he was president of the United States. Do you believe that Donald Trump was president of the United States? Well, unless you're a lunatic or a liar, you'd say, of course I believe that Donald Trump was president of the United States. But if I were to ask you this question, do you or did you believe in Barack Obama as president of the United States, Donald Trump as president of the United States? That's a very different question. Believing about is not the same thing as believing in. And so we have to be people who trust in the saving work of Jesus, not just about. You don't just believe about Jesus, but you have to believe in Jesus. And this is where it gets so serious. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. 
It's what we believe in Jesus that makes the difference in our lives. I love this story, and, and some of you may be bothered by this translation. If you're bothered by it, I hope I can convince you otherwise. This is called the NTE translation. Uh, it's the New Testament for, I think, everyday life. And, and it's the story of the Philippian jailer. And one of the things that I think, if we're not careful, is that we take this story of the jailer and we Christianize it. Instead of realizing that it, was, uh, uh, it existed originally in a very pagan culture. Here's a man who's a Gentile. He's a jailer. He, he, he runs a jail. That's how he provides for his family. And he is thoroughly, totally pagan. In fact, Philippi is so pagan that, that there's not even a Jewish synagogue there. That's how few the Jews are there. There's just a handful of Jews that live in Philippi. It's a Roman colony made up of ex-Roman uh, soldiers. And so here is a pagan jailer. Paul and Silas has come into town. They're preaching about someone named Jesus and how that he died and was raised again and how that he is now Lord, okay? Now, you need to realize how crazy that is in a Roman colony. In the first century, if you'd been a, a Roman citizen, you would have pledged allegiance to Nero. Nero was the emperor. Nero was the son of God. Nero was Lord. Those were already written on coins. I mean, they published coins declaring Nero to be the son of God and to be Lord. Okay? And so imagine someone coming along and saying, wait a minute, there's another Lord. In fact, he is the Lord of Lords. He's Lord. Nero's not. You living in Philippi, you make that confession and you can get arrested. It is that simple. And so here's the jailer. They arrest Paul and Silas. They throw them in jail. And I've heard sermons preached on this. I've heard people say, here they are in jail, they're praying, they're singing, and the jailer's over here and he's listening. And as he's listening, he's wondering, what in the world are they talking about? Who is this Jesus they're talking about? And by the time they get through and the earthquake comes, then he's ready to be saved. Go back and read the text. I don't know how many times I've heard preachers tell that story, and I just want to say to them, if you'll read the text, the jailer is sound asleep. He's not listening to their singing. He's not listening to their praying. He is sound asleep. And the earthquake is what wakes him up. And so look at the translation. Jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling all over, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside. Gentlemen, he said, will you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? Now, again, most translations translate, what must I do to be saved? you need to understand, he didn't have a concept of sin like we do. He did not know the history of Israel. He did not have the Jewish scriptures. He didn't have any of the background we have when we hear that phrase. And that's why they translated, I think, right. I'm in a mess. I mean, my jail just, sales just opened up miraculously. I don't know what's going on. And yet, none of you escaped. Here you all are. Will you please tell me how to get out of this mess? And I love their translation. Believe that Jesus is Lord. Don't miss that. For him to believe in the lordship of Yeshua versus the lordship of Nero is to make a life-changing decision. 
And then know this, and you will be rescued, you and your whole household. He washed their, their stripes, and the next thing you know, they're being baptized into the lordship of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what faith is. The believer's faith is in the saving work. Believe in Jesus. Our faith is in the saving work of Jesus himself. Again, voice translation. Galatians chapter 2. But we know that no one is made right with God by meeting the demands of the law. It's only through the faithfulness of Jesus the anointed that salvation is even possible. This is why we put faith in Jesus the anointed. So we will be put right with God. Notice again, it's His faithfulness. Not works prescribed by the law. It's not our ability to keep the rules. By the way, you know how good we do it, right? I mean, I'm terrible at it. And if you're anything like me, you're terrible at it as well. I mean, I'd love to tell you every time I reacted to June, I reacted in a godly, righteous way. Now, June doesn't, but I do. No, joking. I don't. Y'all know that. I would love to tell you every time I get in a car, I obey all the driving laws of the state of Tennessee. Brothers and sisters, I don't even know all the driving laws of the state of Tennessee. How in the world am I going to keep all of them? None of us can keep the law, whether it was the Old Testament law or any system of law. Notice, he says, it is his faithfulness that puts us in right standing with God because no one will be acquitted, declared right for doing what the law demands. And by the way, that's Old Testament law, New Testament law, or any law system. Which is why I want to help us right here on a very important point. I have sat by too many bedsides, heard too many older Christians as they've been giving a terminal diagnosis say, I hope I've been good enough. And let me just go ahead and answer that question for you. You haven't. And you can't. It is not about how good I am or I've been or will be. It is about the faithfulness of the one I put my trust in, Jesus of Nazareth, that saves me. He was good enough. He did it all. When he said on the cross, it is finished, it is complete, it is done. He meant, I have done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Now put your trust completely and fully in me. Here's the way the Hebrew writer put it. Look into Jesus. The one who begins it and the one who finishes our faith. Notice the language there. He doesn't begin it and then me pick it up and bring it to completion. It's not me doing most of the work and then Jesus filling in at the end or Jesus doing most of the work and me filling in at the end. It is Jesus starting it and finishing it. Here's the way Paul said it. Being confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't respond. That, that leads us to our third point. Our third point is, is that saving faith always manifests itself, though, in a committed obedience. In other words, once you make a decision, you know what? I believe that Jesus has, in fact, died for me, paid the price for my sins, all of my sins, and I am going to respond in a positive way to that that then says, Lord, here I am. I mean, you just tell me what I need to do. 
You turn over to James once again. And by the way, James is this incredible commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people don't realize that. But James, if you go and begin to look at what James is drawing from in his little five-chapter epistle, he's drawing from the book of Proverbs, and the majority of it is from the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But notice what he says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? I don't like the NIV's translation here. That word deeds is actually ergon, it's works, has no works. And and what the NIV is trying to do is prevent James from contradicting Paul when Paul's talking about the works of the law. Listen, the works of faith and the works of the law are two totally different things. The works of faith are in appreciation, the works of the law is in anticipation. Two very different approaches to our obedience to God. But here's what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will. Now, I want you to focus on that. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this. He he translated the message, just a paraphrase. But boy, his paraphrase on this text nails it. Watch how he translates it. Knowing the Craig password, saying, Master, Master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Faith is always an obedient response. Now, perfect obedience? No. Don't go back to making obedience a work of the law. It's obedience that comes from faith. Jesus would say, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Put what he said into practice. That is what faith does. I love this scene. I don't know if you can make it out. This is a scene from The Chosen. By the way, we we launched tonight. Chosen, uh, we're going to begin tonight by having to go back to the end of, of last season. This is 5 o'clock tonight here in the auditorium. We're going to pick up with the last season because if you don't know the last episode of season 1, you won't understand episode 1 of season 2. Okay, So we're going to have to go back and kind of replace the last episode of season 1 to set us up for season 2. I hope you can be here 5 o'clock tonight, The Chosen. But this is in season 2, and it's the scene of Jesus with Philip. Philip's left John the Baptist. He's come to Jesus to follow him. They meet for the first time. And I love the scene. Philip comes to Jesus and they talk about John a little bit. And then Philip says, I have two words for you. To which Jesus responds, I have two words for you. And then almost identically, Jesus says, follow me. And just as he gets the word follow out, Philip says, I will. One of the most beautiful scenes in the entire series. And it's right, exactly right in its response to Jesus of Nazareth. He calls upon us to follow him. And our one response should be, I will. And of course it begins with faith that he is who he claims to be. And then that faith will lead you ultimately, and we'll be looking at this here in about three weeks, to baptism. I mean, that's how you put Jesus on. That's how you are buried with him. That's how you clothe yourself with him. So much tied up in that one act we call baptism. If you need to follow Jesus, put your faith in him, and we can help you with that, let us know right now as we stand and sing.